0: And welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lacouture. Vasia Kapelos is away today. Tonight, Biden visits Ukraine.
1: One year later, Kiev stands, and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands.
0: The U.S. president didn't come empty-handed, pledging another half billion dollars in military aid. How important? Is that help as we approach the one-year anniversary of the war? We get the latest on the ground in Lviv and Odessa. Then, moving migrants. Asylum seekers continue to flow over the Quebec border at that illegal border crossing on Roxham Road, and the province wants those people relocated to other provinces. Premier Francois Legault has made an appeal for help to the Prime Minister. Quebec's Minister for Canadian Relations will be here to talk about that. Plus, another earthquake rocks Turkey and Syria. It comes as both countries are still trying to recover from the devastating quakes two weeks ago. We'll bring you the latest on this developing story. But first.
1: Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He was counting on us not to be able to bring in others on the side of Ukraine. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right
0: now. It was a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital. U.S. President Joe Biden met with Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev as the country approaches the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Now, the show of support was accompanied by a $500 million military aid package, which includes artillery ammunition, air surveillance radar, and armor systems. So how important is President Biden's visit in the days leading up to Ukraine's somber anniversary? CTV's Adrian Gobriel is in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for joining us. I just wanted to ask you, what has been the reaction to Biden's surprise visit so far there?
2: You know, obviously, it was a massive show of support by the U.S. for the Ukrainian people. Today, many people, you know, uh, talking in cafes and restaurants, you know, uh, Biden's visit on the t- on the tip of their tongue Though, you know, this is also also a part of the world where they choose their words carefully, uh, judiciously. And while they're happy that President Biden came, one thing that many people are saying is they want to see action. And action for a lot of people means more aid. We know today that the U.S. promised uh, $500 million, but many want to see, you know, long-range missiles. They want to see protection from the sky.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that assistance package. How critical is that for Ukraine right now?
2: I think every little bit of assistance is critical right now. It's been well documented that, you know, here in Ukraine on the front lines, they're using more ammunition than they can get restocked. You know, many of the NATO countries where some of this ammunition has been coming in from, they really, they, they, they can't make it fast enough. So every little bit counts right now. You know, uh, this week, as we know, it marks one year from, of the Russian invasion. And uh, many are sitting back waiting to see what will come. Well, we know that the fighting has definitely intensified on the Eastern Front.
0: Yeah, and with that one-year anniversary coming up, it's a bit of a somber anniversary because it's the war. But could it also be seen as a celebration of the resistance? And I'm just wondering how people there are preparing for it and how they're seeing it right now.
2: Yeah, you know, many, uh, earlier today I, w- I went to a hospital where uh, we, we, we followed with psychotherapists and psychologists who are, who are there helping those, not just with their physical wounds, but with the mental wounds and the toll that this 12 months has taken on the citizens and the soldiers here in Ukraine. And many say that, you know, uh, what one soldier for spec- uh, said that, you know, this war was going to happen and it's here and they just want get to get it over with. Uh, Others saying that, you know, if this takes another year, if this takes another five years, they're in this for the fight. Um, You know, also we heard air raid sirens today. You know, while President Biden was with President Zelensky today in Kyiv, you heard those air raid sirens. We heard them here as well in Lviv. Uh, We were inside a hospital actually with a patient when the air raid sirens went off. And everyone kind of stopped, looked outside, took stock of the situation, and then they carried on.
0: It's amazing how people, as you sort of said that, and then they just carried on. Has this just become part of normal daily life
2: now there it definitely has become part of normal daily life Uh, even those suffering from PTSD uh, aren't too rattled by the air raid sirens it's other sounds that that they find triggering for them Uh, though local officials especially this week are warning people when those air raid sirens do hit to take cover. You know, most hospitals, hotels, most places, schools, they all have bunkers. They all have bomb shelters to go into. Local officials asking people to heed those warnings this week uh, as we wait and see what could potentially be in store.
0: A lot of people waiting for that. CTV's Adrian Gobriel joining us live from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much for this, Adrian. My pleasure. Now there is a significant political impact of this visit, not only is it a strong sign of support, it also sends a direct message to the Kremlin ahead of that anniversary of the Russian invasion. So what do Ukrainians hope will come out of today's visit? Alexei Goncharenko is a Ukrainian MP with the European Solidarity Party. Mr. Goncharenko, thank you so much for joining us today, we appreciate this.
1: Thank you very much for, for your invitation.
0: I want to start by asking you what message today's visit sent the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin?
1: The message is very clear that Putin will lose this war and there is no fatigue in the West and the West will be with Ukraine as long as it takes. So it's much better for Putin to stop the war now before he is like the disaster happens. So better to stop everything uh, I mean, to finish everything right now. And that is in his hands.
0: Do you see a change potentially this week? And I say that because that symbolism of having the U.S. president there. And you're saying that is a clear message. Do you think he will act on that message that will be sent?
1: We will see very soon, but it's up to him. The the best option he has is to, to listen to this message, to stop the war, to get out from Ukraine, he will still control one-seventh of the uh, land mass of the planet What's the problem. So if he will decide another way to continue the war, I think that him and Russia will receive a disaster.
0: I want to ask you what was more important today, the symbolism of having the US president visit Ukraine or the $500 million in military aid that President Biden has promised to deliver?
1: Both are important. That's a false choice. I mean, uh, for us is important a new package of support. At the same time, the fact that uh, President Biden came to Ukraine uh, exactly at the moment and in the head of Putin, that would be a time for preparing a military parrot on Khrushchev. Commemorating uh, the first anniversary of his great success. But at the end of the day, in one year, he has just big losses. Russia is in disaster. And in Kiev is President Biden. What can be more powerful?
0: Ukraine has asked for fighter jets, but Western allies have been reluctant to even discuss that. You were at the Munich Security Conference just last week. Did you see any progress on the conversation of fighter jets to Ukraine?
1: Absolutely. I posed a question to Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, uh, openly, publicly, and he answered on my question, saying that the United Kingdom starts a training of Ukrainian pilots. That is the most important, because without training, for us, these new, new Western modern uh, fighter jets is just a piece of metal on the wheels. So that's why it's so great that uh, the United Kingdom shows leadership and will first start the training of our pilots. That's a very huge step
0: towards the uh,
1: delivery of this weaponry to
0: Ukraine. It's a huge step, but when will the jets come? Did did the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom say anything about that?
1: No, it will take months. What we need today, which we can use right now, is in long range missiles, because we have a launchers, high masses. We have a trained crew. Uh, the only thing we're lacking is the long range missiles themselves. So that's what one of our, the topic that to me personally, I raised during the Munich security conference, trying to push our allies to do this.
0: Now, there are concerns that China could send weapons to help Russia. How worried are you about that?
1: I am worried about China. China is definitely more neutral, but at the same time, neutrality towards Russia. Uh, May they come come into the situation with their ammunition? Unfortunately, yes. That's why I appreciate that what is done by the United States to prevent this.
0: But what is there left to be done diplomatically now to make sure that China doesn't go and fully support Russia. I know you're saying that in a sense that they've been neutral, but kind of siding on the side of Russia here. So do you think that there needs to be more work done on that to prevent China from really sort of entering the fray and helping Russia?
1: Yeah, we need to do more, but at the same time, the final decision will be in the hands of China in any way. Or do we need to show to China that doing like this, they're moving their country also. They, they're, lo- they, they're joining the losers, because Russia is a loser. If they want to join loser, that's their own
0: choice. Now, I wanted to ask you, because it's been nearly one year since this war started, and in that time, Western allies have been able to help Ukraine keep going here. Are, are you worried that it's going to be hard to maintain that support for longer term? Because once we get beyond the one-year point... That is still a critical time. We are expecting that Russian uh, spring offensive. Are you concerned that the support will not be there for the longer term, even in the months and even one more year?
1: You know, it's not a question of to worry or not to worry. It's not the question to be concerned or not. That's the question of job. That's something which we should do. Because we have all clear arguments which show to American people, to Canadian people, that this war is much more wider than the war of Russia against Ukraine. This is the war which will define at least next decades coming and uh, the first half of the 21st century. This is the war of dictatorships against the freedom. So that's why it's so important. Uh, And that's what we need to explain to people. And if we will explain it, people will understand it and will support Ukraine.
0: How much longer can Ukraine go? We'll go as
1: long as it takes, because for us, it's a question, it's existential. Russians are committing genocide on the occupied territories. I have two sons. So if I don't want my sons to be killed or to be taken to Russia in order to make from them Russians, I need to fight, fight till
0: the end. And do you think that it will last longer, another year, a year beyond that, do you think?
1: I hope that it will last not so long, but I am ready that it will last as it will last.
0: Mr. Goncharenko, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate this. Thank you very much. Coming up, Premier François Legault puts pressure on the Prime Minister to help with Roxham Road. Why does Quebec want the feds to redirect asylum seekers to other provinces? We'll ask Quebec's Minister responsible for Canadian relations when Power Play returns after this. Premier François Legault was demanding the Fed send asylum seekers irregularly entering Quebec to other provinces. Legault laid it all out in a letter sent to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now translated from French, it reads in part that asylum seekers entering irregularly should now be redirected to other provinces because Quebec has done more than its share of the effort over the last years. Premier Legault is also calling for the federal government to urgently conclude renegotiations over the safe third country agreement with the United States as soon as possible. Now the safe third country agreement does not currently cover irregular border crossings. Roxham Road, the popular irregular border crossing has become a flashpoint in Quebec federal relations. More than 30,000 asylum seekers have irregularly entered into Quebec last year, mostly through that Roxham Road crossing. However, the federal government is redirecting immigrant migrants according to Quebec's Immigration Minister, last week the majority of the 380 people who crossed Roxham Road two weekends ago have been redirected to Ontario, where a block of hotel rooms were reserved. We asked Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser's office for a comment on this, but he, we did not get one in time for this show. So, Willa letter forced the feds to do more at Roxham Road? Earlier, I spoke to Jean-François Roberge, Quebec's Minister Responsible for Canadian Relations and the Canadian Francophonie. Hi, Minister Roberge. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So this has been an issue for years. I just wanted to know, why did Premier Premier Legault send this letter now?
3: Well, as you said, it was uh, an issue for for years. But uh, here in Quebec, we are proud of our tradition of uh, welcoming refugees. You know, as long as it was like 1,000, 2,000, it was okay. But now our capacity are exceeded. We cannot no longer uh, take care uh, of, uh, of all the, those refugees, you know. Uh, we have so, some social assistance issues, health care issues, housing issues. So this is why uh, Prime, uh, Prime Minister Legault wrote a letter to Mr. Trudeau Uh, something has to change and it's it's uh, it's a crisis.
0: Now in the letter Premier Legault also notes how a large proportion of the asylum seekers don't speak French and that makes integration more complicated. I wanted to ask you if most of these people did speak French would you not be asking for the federal government's help?
3: No because it's a question of numbers you know if we have a housing uh, crisis if we have education crisis you know it's like uh, it's like we have to build 13 schools 13 new schools within one year to take care of all those kids you know it, it's it's impossible even even if they they uh, they would speak french uh, it's a question of numbers and uh, we simply don't have the capacity to handle that many people right now. This is why other provinces have to, uh, to do their, their share. We did more than our share in Quebec.
0: So what does that mean, do their share? Because we know that some of these um, uh, asylum seekers have now been sent to eastern Ontario. Uh, when you say do their share, are you basically looking for the federal government to bring buses to Quebec to bring some of these asylum seekers to other provinces?
3: well yes and uh we'll say that we appreciate that uh, within the, the previous week uh most of those uh, irregular uh asylum seekers you know coming through roxham road has uh, has been transported to other provinces to take care of them as in the fact is to take care of them to to give them all they need uh, but we want to be sure that uh, we come to a sustainable system because, uh, you know, the, in the past year, in 2022, here in Quebec, we received 39,000 people crossing uh, Roxham crossing R- Road, you know. So irregular entries are, are huge here and we, we don't have the capacity to, uh, to take care uh, of them right now. This is why it's really important that uh, the federal government, um, you know, uh, ha- control the borders, you know, mm-hmm. Some, sometimes federal government wants to tell the provinces how to manage health care, how to manage environment, how to manage education, but they have to manage borders. It's their responsibility.
0: So what's the Quebec government's ask? Do they want Roxham Road and that opening there, because it is an opening, do they want that just to be completely closed off? Because conversely, some people are saying is that if you close off Roxham Road, that the problem will just pop up somewhere else along the border.
3: A simple solution won't uh, do it. Uh, you know, we have to uh, to renegotiate with the United States the safe third country agreement. And it's important that for Mr. Trudeau... Uh, this is now the first priority. It's it's the duty of the Premier uh, of Canada to take control of the borders of Canada. I think Canadian thinks uh, it's important, of course. So there's a meeting with Mr. Biden coming soon. And this should be the number one uh, priority for, for uh, Mr. Trudeau.
0: Has uh, Premier Legault spoken to Prime Minister Trudeau about making it the number one priority? And and if so, what has he heard about that?
3: Well, Mr. Trudeau uh, said he's he's open-minded. He wants to discuss it with Mr. Biden, but we don't have to discuss it. We have to renegotiate it. It's really important because uh, I think that uh, now uh, that uh, other provinces you know they they raise their hand they said yes we 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 can take uh, those uh, those new uh, asylum seekers even though they they go through irregular entries uh, it it will it will be difficult for other provinces because the numbers are huge you know it's hundreds and hundreds every day every day uh, and uh, maybe uh now it will be a national issue not only a quebec issue but a national issue it's it's a canadian issue and uh, it's important that the federal government uh, take some notes and uh, make it a top priority uh, now.
0: What about the discussions that your government, the provincial government, is having with officials in the United States? Is that really making any progress at all?
3: Well, uh, Mr. Legault uh, talked to uh, Americans uh, the last week, uh, the, uh, the ambassador, and uh, they had some great discussion. And Mr. Legault bring... This, uh, this 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 uh, this matter, of course. Uh, I think they are open mind, but they have to realize that for us, it's not a question, you know, uh, like others. It's really important because um, it's a humanitarian issue. You know, we we want to take care of them. We want to give them uh, a roof. We want to give them all they need to go through winters, uh, to through the winter here in Canada. And uh, just to to say that oh yeah we we are we are gentle we, we are we are happy we are open mind we want to welcome refugees it's not enough you know when when they are too number when we are the if they are two uh, two number you know uh, we, we can't we can't uh, respect what we want to do with them.
0: Just last thing, I only have about 30 seconds left, but your government is also seeking financial reimbursement of all costs related to the reception and integration of asylum seekers. How much money are you asking for?
3: Well, well we count it because uh, the flow and the, the pressure on our public services are huge. You know, uh, education, housing, social assistance, uh, health. Uh, it, we're talking about more than 50,000 people living here in Quebec since... Uh, three years they came, and it's really long uh, for, for the government, uh, for the federal government, to go through all the procedure. So uh, we will come back with, with a number, but we want an engagement from the federal government that they, w- they will pay the bills.
0: Mr. Robert I'm going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And our front bench panel is standing by to dig into this a little later on in the show. It's Miriam Monsef, Larissa Waller, Kathleen Monk, and Laura Stone. But first, we'll have a look at the other political stories today in the world. The List is coming up next on Power Play. Welcome back to Power Play. This is The List, news that you need to know today. It was very shaky, Uh, you know, we hardly stood up. It was very difficult. At least three people have been killed and more than 200 injured after a 6.2 magnitude earthquake rocked the border region of Turkey in Syria. It happened just two weeks after a pair of deadly quakes devastated the same area. Turkey's disaster agency is now warning the sea level could rise by 50 centimeters and is asking people to stay away from the coast. Authorities say the death toll from the first quakes hit Turkey and Syria is now more than 46,000. In a tweet today, International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan said, the news of yet another devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria is horrifying. We're accelerating the deployment of humanitarian aid to the region. And escalating tensions today as Japan is calling for an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council. It comes as North Korea threatens to turn the Pacific region into a firing range. On Saturday, North Korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile into the sea off the coast of Japan. It resulted in American air exercises in the region. Today, two more missiles were fired into the sea off Japan, the Japanese coast. North Korea is demanding a halt to annual American South Korean military drills.
2: Our four provinces have been working on launching an Atlantic register for physicians and surgeons to improve uh, mobility within the region and to cut down on the unnecessary red tape and administrative burden uh, for physicians who want to work within the region in any of our health care systems.
0: Starting May 1st, a new Atlantic registry will allow doctors to work in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI and Newfoundland and Labrador without seeking individual provincial accreditations. Atlantic premiers today announced the program to facilitate physicians and surgeons moving and working throughout the region. And remembering a Canadian, a giant of Canadian arts. Longtime National Arts Director Peter Herndorf died this weekend at the age of 82. After a career in the media, the Amsterdam born lawyer held the reins of Canada's National Arts Institution here in Ottawa for almost 20 years. Who's recognized with the Key of the City to Ottawa and the Order of Ontario and the Governor General's Lifetime Artistic Achievement Award. Well, up next, we bring in the front bench to dig into Legault's migrant demands. Stay right here. Power Play. We'll be right back.
3: It's a question of numbers, and uh, we simply don't have the capacity to handle that many people right now. This is why other provinces have to, uh, to do the, their share. We did more than our share in Quebec.
0: And that was Quebec Minister Jean-Francois Roberge on his premier's letter to the prime minister demanding the feds redirect asylum seekers entering irregularly to other provinces. Now, Have a look at these stats. Quebec has disproportionately seen the most cases of RCMP interceptions of asylum seekers apprehended between official ports of entry at 39,171. Other provinces pale in comparison to Quebec's numbers. BC saw the second most at 289. Then there was Manitoba with 72. Ontario saw zero RCMP interceptions last year. Ontario did see about 10,000 asylum claims last year at official ports of entry, but Quebec still saw five times that with over 50,000 claims at official entry points. What could the political fallout be for the Feds if they don't renegotiate the safe third country agreement with the United States? Let's bring in our front bench to weigh in. Maryam Monsef is the CEO of Onward and the former Liberal Cabinet Minister. Larissa Waller with GT & Company and the former head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Kathleen Monk is an NDP strategist and the principal owner of Monk & Associates. And Laura Stone is a Queen's Park reporter for The Globe and Mail. Nice to see you all. Thank you for being here here, even though Vashi is not. Miriam, we're going to start with you. Minister Roberge wanted this to be a top priority between Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden for their meeting that's coming up in March. When you consider the list of other issues that they have to tackle, can we really expect a resolution in the coming weeks?
4: Mike, I think it's reasonable for Quebec to be asking for support and for additional help. I also can completely understand why folks would prefer coming to Canada over the US. The previous administration's legacy includes that enduring image of children in cages. And even now, the hard right politicians rhetoric around immigration newcomers doesn't give that sense of a welcoming country the same way Canada does. Indeed, that's our competitive advantage in the global race for talent. But as far as the safe third country agreement goes, it's important to note that it will only be renegotiated if and when the US wants it to. And we know we've heard from the minister that those conversations are happening and they're moving along. But I think something we might see given the recent pressures, particularly from the Northern Border Security Caucus in the US that that motivation that perhaps was lacking before may be there in the near future. In the short term I think what the feds can do is recognize that there is a labor shortage in Canada as they have, and that there are parts of the country who have been running pilot programs like the Atlantic region that have turned into permanent programs where those labor shortages and the skills and the drive that these newcomers bring are badly needed. So where the feds can do more, I believe, is providing support around logistics to get newcomers there and to do some of that skills matchmaking that is very much needed for our economy.
0: So, Larissa, is are we looking at a bus program rather than a border pro- program here?
5: I think that what the federal government has done so far are a lot of kind of shortstops. They have no real plan to address the, the, the asylum seekers that are coming in uh, off regular points of entry. Um, I don't think it's fair, and I actually don't think it's a Quebec's responsibility at all to bear the burden on this. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to have these conversations um, from just a policy lens. You know, policy-wise, whose responsibility is it? It's the feds, but we're talking about real people, mothers who are coming in with children in their arms, who are hungry, who are wet, who have nowhere to go. And the federal government is, you know, what, putting your in a hotel for a few nights and then you're on your own. I think that the feds really have to come to the table if they are unable to make this a priority in talks with the, feder- with the with their counterparts in the U.S. government, then they have to bear the financial and social responsibility for that failure. It is up to them to get the U.S. to talk about it. And if they can't, they've got to pay for it.
0: So, Kathleen, there becomes a point when a political problem becomes a crisis. Are we there yet?
6: Um, I'm not sure we're there yet. Certainly Legault has upped the ante with this letter to the prime minister this weekend. I I think that the the chance to really get this on the Biden agenda is is minimal, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the competition for what's going to be on that agenda for the 24 to 36 hours that President Biden's going to be in Canada is extremely, extremely tough. They're going to be wanting to talk about bi-American. They're going to want to be talking about Ukraine, Haiti. The the list goes on. So whether safe third country agreement will actually get on the agenda... I'm not so optimistic. But I want to point out what my colleagues have already said, that the federal government does need to step up. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, Quebec saw close to 40,000 asylum seekers cross its border just last year. But the, the number of asylum seekers that Canada is accepting is far less than what the global the, the globe is taking, right? Yeah. And when we look at the crisis internationally, a crisis that's resulted out of violence, out of economic insecurity, out of climate change, the number of you know displaced people is over 100 million. According to H- uh, UNHCR, in terms of refugees, we're talking about 30 million. So the federal government needs to kind of put its money where its mouth is in terms of welcoming these refugees and really needs to find those supports. We already know some, some of these refugees are going to Niagara Falls. They're right. going to Cornwall. So the government's going to need to find a way to settle them and to give them the supports them, that they need.
0: Laura, this is not a problem that's really unique to Quebec, but it's acute in Quebec. Given how important votes are in that province... Does the Trudeau government really have to sort of dig into this now before it gets to be a bigger problem?
7: Uh, I think that's a really good point, Mike, because um, if you'll recall, back in 2018, Ontario brought up these same issues. I was looking back at some stories that we wrote almost five years ago, which makes me feel really old. But um, but this has been kind of bubbling beneath the surface in, in Ontario, and Quebec, for quite some time. And I, I do think that this letter from Legault will probably have more of an impact um, than say someone like Premier Doug Ford um, complaining about it. And I think that is for probably more political considerations and an understanding that Quebec has been dealing with this for a, a very long time. So I think you've seen kind of federal ministers come out and, and, and try to placate Quebec more so than they've done with other provinces. But what's interesting about Quebec's demand is that uh the federal government will have to negotiate with other provinces over this if if you know if they if they choose to 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 transfer some of these people um to more centers in quebec they're going to have to talk sorry to in ontario they're going to have to talk to ontario and as my fellow panelists have said they need to provide way more resources so this is now kind of a a federal problem even though it's most acute in quebec and so now Um, You know, Ottawa is going to have to negotiate now. We've just had these big health talks. I think they're probably going to have to do some more uh, negotiating here with the provinces over uh, what to do with this situation if they fail to kind of deal with this third country agreement um, with the United States.
0: Miriam, to Laura's point there, after that negotiation on health, is there any political capital that's left in this federal government to try and get some more help from the provinces? Or is that now going to be part of the health negotiations? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours.
4: I think what we saw with the health uh, conversations is a willingness for premiers and the federal government to work together to benefit Canadians. And the issue around asylum seekers in Roxham Road, as you showed earlier, Mike, the numbers speak for themselves, and it is important for the federal government to play a role. And I think we've seen the desire to to step up and to support Quebec with that. Uh, those folks going to Niagara Falls, to to Cornwall, that's part of the government stepping up. But I think that there is a note here, too, that Quebec is responsible and premiers in the past have asked for authority over their immigration process. But ironically, perhaps through this letter, the premier shows that the federal government must continue to play a role in immigration, even when it's uh, in the hands of other provinces. So we're going to see folks stepping up. This is a national issue. uh, And if the coordination is done right, It will benefit those regions in the country who want these newcomers, who want these immigrants and want to benefit from their desire to give back to our communities and fill our labor
5: shortages.
0: Okay, we're going to have to leave that subject there. Miriam, Larissa, Kathleen and Laura, stick around on the other side of this short break. Misinformation targeted at the person who wrote the Emergencies Act inquiry. Our elected officials doing everything they can to fight misinformation? The front bench weighs in next on PowerPlay. In the executive summary of his more than 2,000 page report, Justice Paul Le Rouleau described how the Freedom Convoy was, quote, shaped by a complex online landscape. Rife with misinformation and disinformation. The commissioner was also the subject of disinformation himself, which was debunked by our own colleague, Glenn McGregor. As Glenn reported, despite the numerous claims by some social media accounts, Justice Rouleau is not related to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Rouleau also noted that there was misinformation, which was used to quote unfairly discredit all protesters. And he says it was prone to amplification in the news media, so there is a lot of blame to go around. So how are people supposed to guard against misinformation and disinformation? Let's bring back the front bench. We have Miriam Monsef, Larissa Waller, Kathleen Monk, and Laura Stone. Larissa, I'm going to start with you, and we're going to start with the Rouleau story. So he does have a family tie to the family of former Prime Minister jean Chrétien, but it's not the Trudeaus. So in an online world, though, how are we supposed to stop a lie like that?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think when we look at it, we have to look at disinformation and then misinformation. Disinformation is really intentional. Um, and it, it tries to inject lies and mistruths into probably an already really tense situation or tense news cycle. Misinformation is sometimes when like Uncle Bob shares a post on Facebook that's wrong. But that misinformation always sort of starts out as disinformation. How do we fix it? I wish I had a really good answer for you. I think we live in a really polarized um, era of history right now where there's still a lot of hurt and a lot of people who want to create more hurt. Um, I think that there is obviously a responsibility on news media, there's a responsibility on government, there's a responsibility on law enforcement, and then there's a responsibility on everyday people. I double check everything now. I check to make sure it's from a credible news source. I often check to make sure like I go to the, you know, the root story, the root, the root, you know, information, where did that story come from? Mm. But you can't do that all the time. And I would say that like, I'm, I'm in this world. So I know to do that. But so many people that I know that are super smart, don't do that. And they're sharing things that I know aren't true. And I used to tell them, but now it's like, I can't even keep up with the stuff I see. That's not true.
0: Uh, Kathleen, social media is where this movement started. It's really how it grew, and that's something that Rulow had talked about. He also suggested one of his recommendations that the federal there be a federal department or agency that essentially is responsible for monitoring and reporting on social media. How concerned are you that that could be overreach?
6: I'm. Not- sure if it's overreach, I, I tend to agree with Larissa that it needs to be addressed and how you do that, whether it's police, whether it's politics, I would argue it's probably more around civic education and mm-hmm. how we actually educate our, our young people and, and our older people because often I know p- older people in my family have been guilty of the Uncle Bob syndrome yeah. as Larissa <laughs> in terms of sharing things on Facebook that, that, uh, that aren't true but what I thought was interesting what Justice Rulo said, he said that social media could act as an accelerant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for this and then actually he actually pointed out that the protests themselves were both perpetrators of misinformation, but also victims yeah. of, of misinformation themselves. And so how we, how we can, maybe it's going to take a governmental kind of body, maybe it's academics, or maybe it's all, of all of us just kind of taking a breath. And actually checking our sources. It's funny that Larissa says that she double-checks her sources because um, an interesting study by Civics, which is a student democracy uh, nonprofit that operates mm-hmm. in schools, actually does a program called Control-F. And they actually say that some political researchers, ex-staffers like right. Larissa and myself who've worked on the Hill, are some of the best people at kind of discerning and understanding whether sources are true or not because we do a lot of oppo research, just right. like Glenn McGregor, your CTV colleague, did. It's basically opposition research to right. figure out if it's true or not. But more of that, needs to be done.
0: Laura, I'm going to bring you in here because uh, as the one journalist or second journalist on this panel, <laughs> although I'm not a panelist, uh, I just wanted to ask you because we little pointed to the story about attempted arson in the apartment lobby mm-hmm. here in Ottawa as a story that yeah. was amplified by the media. Now, as journalists, we all do our best to fact check and verify. But is this a case where we just need to be better?
7: I mean, w- we always need to be better every single day. You know, you know what it's like, Mike, we restart every day. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday or the day before. Um, We're judged on our our latest work. I mean, I will say the you know, the vast majority of reporting on this uh, story, this Freedom Convoy story was excellent and done under extremely difficult circumstances. And uh, we know the mainstream media was a target of a lot of the vitriol of some of the people who attended attended these, but, you know, a colleague once described us as chronicles of history in real time. We are watching it unfold and we are doing our best in that moment. And so, of course, it's not always going to be perfect. And when there's so many things going on at once and there's an incident such as that, your mind might go to what's happening on the ground there, but you always have to be sure and you yourself have to fact check yourself. So of course, you know, journalists are always learning um, you know, new tricks and, and how, to, how to be better. Uh, so yes, we always do have to be better. And ha- we also have to admit our mistakes. And I think that's a really, really important part of transparency of journalism, corrections and things like that that come out. When you do make a mistake, you have to own up to it. So that's a big part of it. But I do think you know, the vast majority of this work was very, very well done. But of course, there's going to be things that fall through the cracks in these really chaotic situations.
0: Miriam, as the only MP and, and l- legislator on this, uh, this panel, I wanted to ask you, not only you know, have you been victim of online misinformation, disinformation, but also you're somebody who's in the cabinet room and able to sort of dig into this type of thing. So what is the path forward in your mind in trying to uh, limit or really sort of stamp out misinformation and disinformation?
4: Well, I wasn't in Ottawa when the occupation occurred uh, and I'm no longer an MP or a cabinet minister, but I did hear stories and I can only imagine what it was like to be a journalist walking through those crowds, to be a staffer or a politician walking through those crowds. And we heard some of that during the testimonies that happened with, with Commissioner, Rouleau, uh, Commissioner Rouleau. I don't I'm not surprised that the disinformation and the misinformation continues long after the occupation has ended. And even after what we saw was a thorough fair report was presented, which, by the way, spared no one, no actor, no order of government was spared from uh, constructive feedback from the commissioner. It's a reminder, first of all, that we do live in a new era. Uh, where information and disinformation, you know, in the past uh, decades and centuries, it may have been done through pamphlets that were spread. Now, as Kathleen says, it spreads like wildfire through the power of social media. And I agree 100 percent with Larissa that it's not just up to politicians to step up and do something as consumers of information. We need to readjust how we do that. We do need to rely on organizations like Civics, like Samara, who have the capacity to provide that training to everyday Canadians. Journals certainly play a part and their role becomes even more important in this ever uh, more chaotic era we live in. And, you know, what Glenn McGregor did with his article is part of what journalists can do. Not yeah. feeling like you have to give the same weight to misinformation and disinformation in these conspiracy theories because it's the objective thing to do is smart. But I think at the end of the day, every single one of us need to be vigilant that we do live in a new era where information is power and disinformation can very easily affect our health safety and the economic well-being of our country politicians do play a part but we also want to protect our freedom of expression and freedom of speech and politicians need to walk that fine line the rest of us though need to step up and do a bit more as well
0: and Miriam I'm I'm unfortunately gonna have to cut you off there because we're running out of time Miriam Monsef Larissa Waller Kathleen Monk and Laura Stone thank you all for doing that now as the world prepares for the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine people in that country are steadfast in the ongoing fight for their own territory and their own identity as a nation. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Ukrainian MP Alexei Goncharenko, and that resolve that he continues to show in Ukraine is on display in this today's takeaway. I have two sons, so if I don't want my sons to be killed
1: or to be taken to Russia in order to make from them Russians, I need to fight. Right
0: till the end. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Vashi Capels will be right back here tomorrow. And now we're going to hand things over to our colleague, Morella Fernandez.